We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. Hello, listeners. You're tuned in to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio and podcast show bringing you independent and interesting STEM, so that's science, technology, engineering, maths and medicine, to you from Tasmania. This show is supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium news station, so head on over to edge.org.au for more information about them. I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we're recording, the Palawa people. We're recording here on Lucharita, and as this is a podcast, I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land from where you, the listener, are tuning in from. On behalf of everyone here in the studio, I pay my respects to elders past and present. My name is Ollie Dove, and I'm joined today by our guest, Dr. Amy Coglin from the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies. Last week we heard about seabirds, and this week we're going to be staying in the water, as Amy is also a marine ecologist, but with a different kind of water animal. So thank you so much for coming on today, Amy. And it's funny, Amy and I work together, and we've known each other for several years. We're friends. She's an amazing human. But it's so funny how you can know someone for so long, but then the actual knowledge of what you do day to day in your research can slip away. So I'm excited to hear all about your past, present and future in marine science. And to begin, we're going to take it right back to the beginning. How did you end up in marine science? Uh, To begin with, when I was a child, I wanted to be a butterfly and feather collector. So uh, I didn't really know if that was an actual job. It's just that I really like to collect butterflies and feathers. And then my brother wanted to be a marine biologist and like a lot of younger siblings, I wanted to do whatever my brother wanted to do. So it's just really fortunate that he wanted to do something that I really like doing. <laughs> wow, I never knew that. So after school then, did you study marine science? Yeah, I actually went on to study marine science and my brother went on to do art. Oh, wow, you so completely switched. Yeah, we switched, yeah. Oh, wonderful. And you've just finished up your PhD. So what was the gap between that undergraduate degree and your PhD? So during my undergraduate, I was in Perth, Western Australia at the University of Western Australia, which is a really beautiful institute if you ever get a chance to see it. It's big sandstone buildings. It's right on the river. There's dolphins that jump that you can see at lunchtime. And I really connected with some of the professors that I had there. So at the end of my undergraduate, they offered me an honours, which I did looking at this technology using cameras and trigonometry, which I never thought I would use Mm -hmm. outside of high school. I was like, why am I learning about triangles? Um, Where you use two different cameras and you can... Uh, it's a stereo video system. So you can actually measure the size of a fish that you capture, provided it's filmed by both cameras, to within millimetres of its actual body size. And what are you doing with that information? So that information gets used for a lot of different things. It gets used for fisheries data. Um, and it sort of got me interested in fish body size to begin with, which is something that I went on to do later. Oh, awesome. So what did it lead on to? What came later? Well, after that, um, I had some advice from people in the lab who said, don't go straight into academia, go and get a bit of real world experience. So I went to Indonesia and became a scuba dive guide master, did my dive master thing in Indonesia, yeah, in Komodo. Oh, wow. And 
Did you end up using that dive experience later when you came back into academia? Yeah, I definitely used it later on, but it was a nice, fun little break from study and academia. I can imagine. So if you were originally from Western Australia, how did you end up in Hobart, Tasmania? So after I did my stint in sort of the dive industry and snorkeling industry, um, I remember I watched this documentary. I'd watched this documentary in my honours called The End of the Line. And it was about how overfishing is reducing the food supply of fish to humans, which is important for nutritional food security, but also how it's impacting the ecosystems. And there was a professor in that documentary. uh, He was called Daniel Pauly. And there were a few other professors there. And I thought, okay, I need to do something next. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to figure out who I'd really like to work with, who's some of the best experts in the field, and then figure out where they are and then get a working visa and go there and see if I could get a job. And then what happened? Well, I got the working visa to Canada. I showed up um, and I knocked on the door and I went and met Dirk Zeller, Professor Dirk Zeller, who's now at UWA. And I said, hi, I'm from Western Australia. Um... I would really love to work with you guys. And they were like, oh, we don't actually have any jobs going at the moment. And I was like, oh, well, no, there was never a job. I was just like, I'm going to go and see. Whoa. Yeah. That's a huge way to go. Yeah, it was huge. I just just jumped in. I had the working visa and I thought, well, the worst thing that can happen is I end up in Canada and I work at Whistler. You know, like either way I win. Stick with us, listeners, for part two as we talk more about that PhD and what Amy was researching. Welcome back to That's What I Call Science. Today, our topic is a little bit fishy. My name is Ollie Dove and I'm joined by our expert guest, Jane. And I'm joined by our expert guest, Dr. Amy Coglin from the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies. So we've dibble-dabbled a little bit in the run-up to your PhD, but now for a bit more nitty-gritty science, because you've recently passed your PhD, so huge congratulations, you've made it through, you're out the other side. What was it that your PhD focused on? So I focused on reef fishes and their ecology. So despite coastal areas being a small part of the global surface, let's say about 6% of the global surface, these living resources, reef ecosystems, provide almost 40% of estimated global services provided by the natural world. And according to the World Bank, about 3 billion people rely on coastal and marine fisheries, which indirectly or directly also employ about 200 million people. What's the main takeaway message that came out of your PhD then? The main takeaway message or what I hope to contribute to is this overall idea that marine fisheries are one of the final frontiers of a wild harvest. So unlike a majority of the food supplies um, from land, uh, these a lot of things like the wheat, the grains, the vegetables, etc., the meat even, is largely from an agricultural system where we as humans have an idea of how many cattle we have in our stock. We have an idea of what ages they are, when they'll be ready to collect to turn into a Maccas burger. Um, we also know how much fertiliser we've put on how many hectares of wheat. So we have a lot of control over those systems and how much produce we will get at the end of the day. 
20% of the global population is reliant on marine fisheries for a majority of their macronutrient supplies in their diets. Um, these are largely not aquaculture. So they are self-producing without human intervention. So I'm interested in how is it possible that with these enormous population just booming of humans, it keeps growing, we keep taking from the ocean day after day after day, how is it possible that these ecosystems are keeping up? And I'm not saying that they're not being impacted by humans because they largely are, yet we're still seeing so many people dependent on this resource and it is to a certain extent, fueling a lot of the human population. How is it doing that without us putting in fertiliser, controlling the stocks that we have out there by, you know, corralling these animals into a pen like we do with sheep or cows? So I'm really interested in the ecological functioning that enables this biomass of food to exist. And what was the ecological functioning? So... There's quite a few facets, so it's definitely not a simple question and I decided to just focus on a couple of those facets. Um, one of the things that I looked at was the supply of original energy. So in ecological systems, we have light that is inaccessible to organisms, which gets transformed into a form of energy that we can consume, which is largely uh, carbohydrates from plants on land. Um in the marine system, though, there's not only the sort of equivalent of land plants, which would be your macroalgae and your seagrass and your different benthic primary producers, but there's also this stuff floating through the air. So if you imagine that you could just inhale pollen and eat it, that's what phytoplankton is in the marine realm. So there are two sources of primary production and they're very different in how they respond to environmental stresses. And what is that difference? Well, phytoplankton is sort of a food source that has a very quick turnover in terms of um, if, you, if there's a sudden impulse of nutrients, uh, the phytoplankton can react quite quickly, but then they also react quite quickly. If there's a lack of resources, uh, it's suddenly like a desert situation. There's nothing they can eat. Well, then they're also going to respond quickly to that. Benthic primary producers often have resources built up in their larger bodied structures that mean that they can survive periods of low nutrients. Uh, however, phytoplankton can be produced elsewhere and imported by currents, whereas your, your local source of primary production is really dependent on what's happening locally. So if you have a sea urchin outbreak, then your local large-bodied sort of phytoplankton and seagrass and things like that can be impacted by an outbreak of a predator or a herbivore that's happening in that area. Another aspect of my PhD was looking at how the body size of animals can impact uh, the ecosystem functioning. So unlike on land where animals are pretty much sorted into being a herbivore or a predator from birth, a small bodied zebra is still going to eat grass when it's a large bodied zebra and a small bodied lion is still going to eat meat when it's a large bodied lion. In the marine realm, what you eat um, and your ecological role as predator or prey can largely be determined by your body size. So it's quite possible that you will have something that is a small-bodied individual 
um, which is, let's say, predatory feeding on little amphipods or something like that. And what's, it's, Sorry, what's an amphipod? Oh, like a small um, insect, cool. let's say. Nice. But a water insect. Yeah. Crustacean. Uh, so you could have something that is feeding, and in that role it's a predator, it's feeding on another animal, but when it gets large enough, it could become a herbivore. Oh, that's the... That's not the way round I was expecting you to say it. I thought if they're mm. bigger, they'd be able to become predators. Well, and the other thing is that a lot of fish are gape limited. So if you imagine um, not having hands and you can only open your mouth so wide um, and you're swimming around in a swimming pool and someone is saying you can eat some apples or you can eat some cherries and they're floating around in the water. You have no hands. So you're not going to eat the – it's going to be quite difficult to bite the apple and also the apple is going to float off and then someone else might bite the apple. But if you go for something a lot smaller, like a cherry or a grape, let's say, because that doesn't have a dangerous <laughs> seed, you can just swallow it whole. So a lot of marine predators are limited to what they can fit in their mouths. So as you get bigger, you can fit bigger things in your mouth. So you can eat bigger prey. So the consequence of only being able to eat things that are smaller than you means that we end up with something like a tuna that can eat a little um, whatever fish it finds Uh, and then a shark which can eat a tuna and so we get these increasingly large predators the higher we go up the food chain. And I think that there are often memes about that, like the the big fish eating the smaller fish eating the smaller fish eating the smaller fish. So that's not really something we see on land but it is something we see in the marine realm. And actually this has a lot of flow-on effects for how ecosystems are structured. So if I'm understanding you correctly, the ecological role of a fish changes as its body size changes? Yes, and actually large-bodied fish are some of the most important fish in an ecosystem. They produce the most offspring, so they're really important if you want to keep catching fish into the future. They also are incredibly important predators. And so a good example is um, if you overfish large fish that are predatory on sea urchins. You can end up in a situation where the sea urchins become very abundant and they start to eat all of the macroalgae and then you get these urchin marins which we see around southern eastern Australia and that can affect the amount of other animals that you want to catch like abalone and other fish. So a large-bodied individual is very important in an ecosystem And unfortunately, people like to catch the biggest fish. So what I'm working on at the moment is a project uh, supported by Pew Fellowships in Marine Conservation. And it's looking at how the lack of conservation of fish body size is starting to affect how ecosystems function. So the fact that we are targeting largely these big-bodied fish, how is that affecting the ecosystem? And also how can we get information on what the body sizes are in the environment? Awesome. Incredible work. Stick with us for part three, listeners, as we talk with Amy about some of her fun adventures underwater. Welcome back, listeners. You're tuned into That's What I Call Science. My name is Ollie Dove, and I'm joined by our expert guest, Dr. Amy Coughlin from the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies. 
Often all we see in journals are the results of data analysis, but I don't think we fully appreciate the effort that went into acquiring the data in the first place. Amy's told us about what she found out and what she's interested in, but Amy, how did you collect that data? So to study reef fish, um, there's a couple of ways you can collect fish. You can collect fish by catching them angling. You can set out something like a gill net and you can go spearfishing. If you're catching fish by angling, um, you're going to be limited to the types of fish that will actually feed on your bait. So something that eats seaweed is probably not going to come to your hook. And if you're gill netting, it's really hard to target fish that you want. You could end up with anything because I also got gut content information. I collected DNA and I collected um, some biochemical data from their tissues. I decided to go spearfishing and I had never gone spearfishing before in my life. So you got trained up to do it for the PhD specifically? So I went to New South Wales and I met with one of Australia's best spear fishermen. His name is Derek Oscar Cruz. He's an award winner. He's very good uh, in the, all the competitions he enters in. And he taught me how to spearfish. And then I proceeded to um, catch far fewer fish than him. But my aim was to get as good as I could and have a lot of members from the fishing community who were very skilled uh, come along with me and sort of... S- I would support them and learn from them, but they did a lot of the heavy lifting because they were very, very skilled. When you're spearfishing, are you scuba diving or free diving? I did begin scuba diving and um, this would involve having to have a shark shield on me, which is a long whip-like appendage almost that you wrap around uh, one end around your ankle and then you have this long whip that sort of flails around you in the current and it's electrified and so um, if it touches you you will be electrocuted by it. That sounds terrifying but also incredibly cool. Very uncomfortable, especially if you are holding on to a metre-long metal rod, which is basically just um, amplifying whatever this electrical current is. So, yeah, that was quite hectic. Did you come across many sharks? Did the shield work? If I saw a shark, um, I would turn the shark shield off and I would try to make sure that my samples had been taken to the surface and I would keep an eye on the shark because I didn't want the sharks to be affected by the shark shield. Um, However, if a shark snuck up on me, like a wobbegong, they frequently did, I would often turn around and there'd just be this big eyes looking at me and I also never knew that they could get to like four metres long. So there was an enormous, it was like a piece of reef moving towards me. Um, Not all sharks seemed to be incredibly um, put off by the shark shield, but then I didn't see all sharks probably. So perhaps there were some more pelagic sharks that I just never saw. Wow. And where was this place? What reefs were you working in? So I collected samples from Tasmania, New South Wales, um, southern New South Wales, uh, around Sydney, and then all the way up to uh, the Solitary Islands. And then also from far north Queensland, just off Cape York, an island called Lizard Island. 
And I was supposed to do some more sampling, but unfortunately, I was a COVID PhD. Mm. So that interrupted my work. I can't imagine. <laughs> Did you find that the results from your work differed? Were the fish and the body size results that you got different to what you were getting here in Tasmania in the colder waters? Yes, so temperature has a very important impact on body sizes. There is a well-known law in ecology called Bergman's Law. We're not too sure. There's a lot of debate about why it happens. But it's that as you go towards the poles to colder environments, animals tend to be larger. It probably reflects the thermal mass, which means you're able to retain heat a lot more if you are a larger individual. So I also decided to look at how body size would change with temperature. And we are finding some very interesting results. Um, there was a really good study by someone in my lab looking at if we fished out the largest individuals and we subjected ecosystems to global warming, we found that there was a bit of a crash in recruitment for fish in those environments. Um, whereas if you kept the large fish and you subjected the system to warming, you kept actually a pretty stable environment so body size and warming are very important they do interact but this is still an area of active research Mm, how interesting what would you say is the most memorable moment that you've had underwater I think it would be the time that I was uh, I had caught a fish and uh, there was a tap on my shoulder and it was my dive buddy and I looked at them and I was like I'm really busy dealing with this fish that I you know I've caught um and then the tapping got more aggressive and I was like I'm just I'm really occupied I'm looking at you and I'm not seeing what you're seeing you know you very limited communications and this is all happening within about a five second space so you know there's not much going through my head I'm just looking at this person like I'm busy and then uh, my dive buddy just grabbed me and pulled me upwards and in the process I spun around and that's when I saw that four meter wobbegong approaching and it was just shock because up until then I'd maybe seen ones that were a meter a meter and a half two meters maximum maybe two and a half meters I was like whoa that's big but I turn around and this is a beast and it was like it was it was basically touching my fins so it would it 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 wasn't posing a threat um it was probably just you know a bit hungry and what am I doing and probably I'm gonna push you out the way so I can eat your fish kind of thing but it was huge and it was a very memorable moment wow I can't even imagine this is why I stay with seabirds and work with animals smaller than myself that's incredibly impressive Amy, to finish off with, is there anywhere our listeners can find out more about your work? I would direct people to fishsizeproject.org. And this is a project which is getting off the ground running now, but it has some really interesting information. There's also the Marine Predator Lab, of which I'm involved with, and the Size Ecology Lab. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on today, Amy. And thank you, listeners, for tuning into That's What I Call Science. We love bringing you STEM-related content, and we really hope that you enjoyed the show. If you did, you can get in touch with us and find out more by searching That's What I Call Science or That Science Taz on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. My name is Ollie Dove, and I'd like to thank once more our wonderful guest, Dr. Amy Coglund. So from us here in the studio, hope you all have a wonderful week. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au.
You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.